Please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We have the great privilege this morning to consider one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible. If you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 in Hebrews 4, but we're going to start reading this morning at verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find help, grace to help, in time of need. And Lord, we thank you for your word today. We pray you would open our eyes to what you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. Jesus is our priest. He's our priest. For many people, the word priest carries a negative connotation. Modern day usage of the word brings to mind hierarchy and abuse of power and arrogance, even. I haven't had much interaction with people who hold the title of priest in my life, but I remember a time when I was a brand new Christian, back in the early 80s. I went to a funeral of a relative, and a a person with the title priest happened to be presiding over the funeral. And as I was sitting there, a brand new believer excited about my newfound faith in Christ, knowing that nothing I could do could get me to heaven, I realized as I was sitting there that this, this priest was pronouncing that this person was now in heaven. And I, I went up to him after the, the service. I was afraid to do so, but I did so anyway, boldly, but also very humbly and gently. And I asked this person, the rationale behind uh, the words that they had used. And instead of getting a discussion, I was blasted. I was like almost kicked off the property because I had asked that question. How dare I ask? Now in the New Testament, you will be comforted to know that the title priest is never used to refer to an individual minister in the church. The title is reserved for Jesus Christ alone, the title priest. Now this was revolutionary because of the background of the Jewish priesthood. In Judaism, the high priest was chosen by God 
appointed by him as a representative to the people, of the people, before God. The duties were to offer gifts and sacrifices on their behalf, to make atonement in the holy place one time a year. He was to be tender and compassionate because he was to remember that he also had to offer sacrifice for his own sins. In biblical times, there were both good and bad priests, just as there were good and bad kings. Some followed God, some honored God, and some didn't. When God provides a solution to a human problem, the fact that people are involved often makes the water muddy. Sin is the culprit. It's why we need judges and lawyers and referees and mediators in human affairs. If left to our own devices, we actually create more problems than solutions when we try to fix our problems. We see it in our families. We see it in our other interpersonal relationships. We see it in the workplace. We see it in our schools. We see it in government. We see it in society in general. We even see it in the church. You name it. So it should come as no surprise to us that because people are involved, people who are sinful, weak, prone to error, there are going to be problems. See, the reason we need a priest is because of sin. There would be no need for a priest if it were not for sin. We need someone to represent us before God. Sinful humans could not stand in the presence of a holy God. They needed a God-ordained intermediary. The problem, though, with with human priests is that they were sinful. It exposed our need for something better. Something beyond the human. And our problem was solved in Christ who went to the cross in our behalf. Jesus is our priest. He's our priest. As such, what does Jesus do for us as our priest? In his role as priest... The first thing we see in this passage is that he represents us perfectly to God. See, earthly priests could not do that for the people they represented. They could not represent the people perfectly before God. They were just a shadow of the perfect. Just a glimpse. But see, what Jesus did, who he is, and what he provided are all perfect. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast. We have a great high priest. He is our advocate. So we are commanded then to hold fast. Now at first glance, you might not see the connection between the warning that God has given earlier about Israel's past mistakes and refusing to enter into God's rest, and then this idea of the priesthood of Christ. But there are some really great connections here. There's three key ideas that we see in these three verses, 14, 15, and 16, that we've already been seeing in Hebrews earlier. You've got the idea of the the high priesthood of Jesus. Uh, Starting with this passage, it now becomes the dominant theme for most of the book of Hebrews. 
We have the idea of the confession of the believer, the confession of the truth of the gospel. We have also the confidence that we have in Christ. These have all been seen uh, before we come to chapter 4, verse 14. God balances the admonition that they had been given with some positive encouragement. We all need encouragement. We all need uh, strength to keep on going. And this is what we have in these three verses. God shows them that Jesus alone is the one who can give them the strength they need to hold on, to not give up, to not go back to Judaism. And also he's the one that can help them resist the temptation to let go. The same is true for us. God shows us as well that we can overcome the temptation to go independent, to be discouraged and to go elsewhere for our needs to be met. There are three observations I want to make just on the idea that Jesus represents us perfectly as we kind of unpack this verse. The first is this, that Jesus is our great high priest. That word great is mega, it's it's, Huge, it's awesome. Jewish believers had forsaken the temple rituals. They were often criticized for not having a high priest. And the writer of Hebrews calls attention to the fact that there is this specific, unique, special character of Jesus as their high priest. Now Israel had had many high priests in their history. Some were godly, some were greedy. But none could be called Great. None. Not one. No other high priest is the Son of God. No other high priest could compare to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he does. I've been reading through Leviticus recently, and in Leviticus 16, we see that before the high priest could even enter the holiest place, the the holy of holies. Not just the holy place, but the holiest of holy places. Before he could even enter that place, he had to make sacrifice for himself, for his own sins. Because he was a sinner, just like the people he was representing before God. And he could only stay in the presence of God while he was offering that sacrifice. Then he had to leave. And when Christ appeared, it signaled the end of the Jewish priesthood and the end of the sacrificial system. I'll tell you, one thing we need to remind ourselves is this fact. Jesus did not institute a hierarchical system of priesthood. He did not institute a priesthood that was a human, individual, uh, church position priesthood. The church does not have a priesthood. It is a priesthood. The Reformation brought into focus, once again, the rediscovery of the priesthood of all believers. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter 2, we see a quote from the Old Testament in verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9, Quoting Isaiah 61.1, excuse me, 61.6, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. 
Look up at verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All believers are types of priests in that they can come to God on their own without another human representative standing by their side, helping them along the way or opening the door for them. Jesus is our great high priest. We have no authority except Jesus. And I hope if, if, you, if you have that negative view of priests uh, locked there in your memory, I hope that you can replace that negative human view with a positive biblical view of our great high priest, Jesus, our only true priest. Jesus went all the way to save us as our priest. He went the entire way. He went through birth as a baby. He went through childhood, manhood, death itself, and even the grave. After his resurrection, he passed through the heavens, as verse 14 tells us. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He paid for our sin. He substituted himself in our place. He freed the prisoners. He went the whole way. Ephesians 1 tells us that, after, that he ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Nothing could hinder him from going where he intended to go. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus, the, God the Son, praying to God the Father, said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. He was going the whole way to the cross, to the grave, through the heavens, and then to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, he appeared on our behalf in the presence of God as our priest. In the old system, there were three areas to the, to the tabernacle and to the temple. There was the outer court, there was the holy place, and there was the holy of holies. The holiest place. It was not a place that was visited often. It was not a run-of-the-mill room that people threw their stuff in to go elsewhere. The priest would go into this third area, the Holy of Holies. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And he would go back out. Jesus, though, went into the heavenly holy of holies where God himself dwells. And he is there all the time. 
in the presence of God, our representative. As our representative, Jesus did far more than any earthly priest could ever do because he remains there in the presence of God on our behalf. We also see in this verse, in verse 14, that Jesus' humanity and his deity are in perfect balance and harmony. He is called Jesus, the Son of God. Here we have his human title, Jesus, and his divine title, the Son of God. He is both man, Jesus, and God, which the Son of God signifies. There are other places where we see these these two ideas put together, Jesus, the Son of God. And when you see that, you can know 100% man, 100% God, in perfect harmony. See, a lot of people think that God is unconcerned or disconnected from the stuff we go through. All he couldn't understand. God just couldn't understand. He's so far above us, he couldn't understand. See, Jesus being God and man enabled him to most fully experience what we go through and to understand to a degree so far greater than what we can understand, it would blow our minds if we understood. He understands perfectly the condition of man and the purpose of God. He's the perfect mediator between God and mankind because he is both God and man. No Jewish priest ever possessed that distinction. It wasn't possible at the time. But as we see, and as we shall see next, in the next verse, God and man in Christ uniquely shares in his people's trouble and sorrow. And trials. You see, what we see in verse 15 is that Jesus, as our high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. We're weak. We are well aware of our weaknesses, are we not? He understands everything we go through. Verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You got the double negative. We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize, which means we do have a priest who can sympathize. He knows, he understands, he feels with us. He identifies with us in our pain. And he understands our weakness, which is common to all. And he has been tempted in all ways, just like us. Yet without sin, not like us. That's good news for you and me. Good news because someone who was without sin fully experienced the full weight of temptation and stood firm. He sympathized with our weakness. He does not sympathize with our sin. This does not say he sympathizes with our sin. That would be to excuse our sin. He sympathizes with our weakness and our, and, and our temptation that we often buckle under and then sin. You see, Jesus could be tempted, but he could not sin. In relation to God, he was holy. In relation to man, he was blameless. Matthew 17, verse 5, at his baptism, God the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am what? Well pleased. He was well pleased with him because he was the sinless Christ. The man, Christ Jesus, was the Holy One of God. 
Therefore, he could not sin. Now, what about Satan and what about Adam? They were created without sin, but they yielded to temptation. What's the deal with that? Well, first of all, one was merely a created angel. And the other was a mere man. But Jesus was not a created being. He was God manifested in the flesh. God incarnate. In his humanity, he was holy. And so was so far higher above unfallen Satan or Adam as the heavens are higher above the earth. He was impeccable God and also impeccable man. That is good news for us. He's an example to be followed. He is one to be worshipped. Our faith can rest on him with unshakable confidence because of who he is. As human, he could be tempted. As God, he could not respond. It's not a sin to be tempted. You might be tempted right now. It's not a sin. It's a sin to yield to that temptation. It's a sin to give in. As God, Jesus could not give in. Now, sometimes we think that because Jesus is God, he must not understand temptation the way we do. That's faulty reasoning. I'll tell you why. Jesus faced temptation more severely than we ever will. I mentioned this briefly a few weeks back. The sinless one knows temptation in a way that we do not. Because only one who never gave in could experience the full impact, the full weight of temptation. Jesus knew the strength and fury of temptation in a way that we never will. Because we give in way before. He knew temptation to a degree that we can never know. Because we're sinful and we buckle under the pressure. Jesus knows what we go through. Jesus knows. He has faced worse. Can you grasp that? He has faced worse. Jesus Christ did not sin. Jesus Christ would not sin. Jesus Christ could not sin. He absolutely had no capacity to do so. So his temptations were all the more extreme. But what we also see in this verse is that he can sympathize more than one who has fallen. There's something that I was thinking about this week that I, it helped me a lot and I hope it will help you. Um, we assume that someone who's fallen into a certain sin, you name the sin, but whoever has fallen into that sin and then repented of that sin and come out on the other side is the best able to help us. It kind of goes with the way we reason. That if someone has uh, done a certain sin and, and fallen and, and, and repented and God has raised them back up, that as they go along, they're going to be the best one to help us when we fall into that sin or into that temptation. 
But this verse seems to suggest that those who have known the full force of temptation and stood firm with humility is better able to help. Better able to help. You've got to chew on that one for a while. I've been chewing on that one all week long. See, the one that never fell but stood firm humbly is the best counselor. The Gospels remind us that Jesus was tested during his earthly life. We remember Gethsemane. We remember him being tempted by Satan in Matthew 4. And we know that every time Satan threw something at him, he responded with the word of God, with the sword of the Spirit, that that short dagger. Jesus was tempted in all the ways we are, with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Yet he was without sin. He stood firm and stands with us now in our moment of testing. Who would you rather have standing with you? Someone who buckled? Or someone who is far stronger than the temptation? That's who we have standing with us. That's who we have with us right this very moment. Jesus, our high priest. Praise God that we have such a savior. Jesus, our high priest, is seated in heaven. You know, there's only one time we say that he was standing. It was in Acts 7 when Stephen was going to his martyr's death, his Christ-like death. And Jesus was standing. You know what the Greeks thought? The Greeks thought that God's primary attribute was apathy. Apatheia was the Greek word. It was where we get our word apathy. The inability to feel anything at all. That's what they thought God was like. We start thinking the same thing sometimes. We get warped in our thinking. It's not true. See, they thought God was apathetic, but Jesus is not like that. He knows what we go through. The Greek word for sympathize literally means to suffer alongside with. He is suffering with you this very moment if you are in suffering. See, what makes the difference is that Jesus added humanity to his deity and came and lived among us as a man. See, when you have been there, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? When you've been there, you can speak of it. He can give both sympathy and confidence. He can both feel with us and give us the truth at the same time. What happens when we try to help people? We'll give them sympathy sometimes and feel with them, but we don't give them the truth, so they have no confidence. Or else we give them the truth And they have confidence, but there's no sympathy, and it's cold. Jesus gives both. The best encouragers give both. There's something else we see, and it's verse 16, that Jesus provides everything we need. Everything we need. Verse 16 says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence the throne of grace, to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, what beautiful words. (laughs) See, we can't always get what we want. Would be nice. Actually, it would be bad. But we can't always get what we want, but God gives us exactly what we need. 100% of the time. 
You don't have to worry about getting what you need. You don't have it right now. You don't need it right now. I hear some of you turning to your your spouse and saying, okay, I guess I won't go to that store after church and buy that electronic gadget. (laughs) If you don't have it right now, you don't need it right now because God provides everything we need at every single moment, 24 hours a day. We can come to the throne of grace. There is a purpose in our coming. We are coming to a throne that is full of grace. And as we are at that throne, we receive mercy, a provision from God. And it's in our time of need. The one who represented us perfectly to the Father also perfectly meets our need. There is mercy available at this throne. All the time. (laughs) All the time. We may obtain mercy at this throne. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. The wrath of God is what we deserve. But in our time of need, we receive mercy. We are offered this gift. Uh, we We deserve hell and judgment and shunning. And we see open arms and are embraced. There is grace at this throne. It's the throne of grace. That means there is grace there. It is a place full of grace. And all the time, grace is getting what we don't deserve. In James chapter 4, just one book over, James 4 and verse 6 says, but he gives a greater grace. A greater grace. More grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we come to the throne of grace, we do not and cannot come with proud hearts. We accept his free gift of grace. In salvation, we accept the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. John 1 tells us that he gives grace upon grace. That is grace in the place of grace, in the place of grace, in the place of grace. It's a continual supply. All the time. Never a moment when there is no grace available in our time of need. John Newton was the author of the the. The hymn, Amazing Grace. He had much to be ashamed of in his life. Much to regret. Much like us. And he penned those words. and He was quoted as saying, I know something. That I am a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. Christ is a great Savior. There is grace. Full and free. And there's also help. Help. Can you help me? You know those people you can go to and they, you know they will help? They would lay down in front of a bus for you? Those people are gems. Treat them well. There is help available in our time of need. He gives help. I, I've got a, a AAA card in my wallet. 
Three times a year, they will come and help me. <laughs> Up to 200 miles. But Pete would go 1,000 miles to help me any day of the year. But Jesus, 24, 365, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, Jesus is our help in time of need. Every moment is a time of need. I think that's why we're encouraged to pray without ceasing. We are sinful. Christ is holy. We cannot take care of our sin problems. We should know that by now. I think we all know that. We can't do it on our own. By working on our sins. Some of you walked in here today, you're working on your sins. You do that, it's going to pop up somewhere else. I'll guarantee it. It's as if we could Photoshop it out, right? I mean, what did we do before we could just Photoshop it out? You know how many times I've heard that? Oh, the picture didn't work out. Oh, let's just Photoshop that part out. You take a picture, you don't like it, just Photoshop it out. Just fix it. Fix the problem. Problem is, with sin, you cannot Photoshop it out. That's not going to work. Jesus did more than that. Jesus did more than just cover over it. Pretend. He conquered sin and death. He conquered it at the cross. He rose victorious from the grave. There is victory in Jesus. Our high priest... He sympathizes. He provides everything we need for life and godliness. But guess what? God does not intend for us to sit back and just enjoy the show as if we were watching a movie or something. God has opened up a way for us to enter in, to fully identify with and to experience exactly what we're talking about. What does Jesus enable us to do? In Christ. I'm going to share two things. In Christ, and there, by the way, the two uh, encouragements and challenges in this passage. The first is we are able to answer the call to hold on. You feel like you're at the end of your rope? You can hold on. This is referring back to what's already been said before in this book. In chapter 1, and chapter 2, and chapter 3, that the divine sonship of Christ, his incarnation, his exaltation, all of that is the motive for us holding on to our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's in control, that he will never leave us or forsake us. That our confession that God is good and he is faithful. Jesus loves me. The other thing we can do is rise to the challenge to draw near. I think that's probably even harder than holding on. Why do we have such a problem and a challenge with that? I think it's because we think God's still angry with us. I think it's because we think that God still needs his wrath appeased because of our sin. That our sin is so heinous that there has to be something else done for it and we must be the doer of that deed. It it's, goes back to trying to earn our way to God. We knew we couldn't do it before we were saved, but after we were saved, we still do the same thing. 
We act the same way towards God. As if Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient. It was done at the cross. It was done. It was finished. God allows us now to come near to him. To come near like a trusting child jumps into their parents' arms and and makes requests. We have the freedom. You know what? The draw near with confidence, it literally means to speak freely in the presence of God. What does that mean? What's it pointing to? It's not some ambiguous thing. My friends, it's very simple. It's prayer. And I think due to sin, a lot of us, when we hear the word prayer, we go to sleep. (laughs) Or we don't want to talk about it. We want to talk about something else. Something more exciting. What could be more exciting than talking to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? What could be more exciting than conversing with our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens? What could be better than that? Well, we can think of lots of things that feel better than that. It's hard work and it makes your knees sore. But it's the best activity for a believer. We have come boldly to the throne of grace. We can pour our hearts out to God. We can tell Him everything. You go, I can't pray. That's all right. Just talk to God. Just talk to Him. Let Him know. Every moment is our time of need. In fact, uh, it's one thing to hear, it's another thing to do. I want us to be doers of the word. Daniel's here today. Uh, Charlie Rennes' nephew is maybe at the brink of death in Thailand. Just ga- I want us to pray right now. Let's ga- gather. If you're, near, if you're near Dan, just lay your hands upon him. If you're near Charlie, put your hand on his shoulder. If someone else needs prayer, just raise your hand and the people around him just... Pray for him for a moment. And then I'll close us. Just let's do it right now. Let's do what we're talking about. Let's come boldly to God's throne. Lord, we thank you that we can come boldly to your throne and to receive your mercy and grace. Lord, we lift our brother Dan up to you now. We ask for healing. We ask for you to raise him up out of this illness. We pray for Charlie's nephew, Lord Mike, and we pray that you would heal him. Even as we pray, as our prayers go to you, Lord, you are the only one we can go to. And Lord, we thank you. We can come boldly to your throne, humbly knowing that you are the only one that can help us. And Lord, we thank you. We lift every need in this place up to you. Every need of our hearts, the ones we don't even want to voice because it just hurts us so bad. We lift them all to you, Lord God. And we thank you that you hear our prayers. And we pray in Jesus' name. One last thing. I think that one of Satan's strategies is to get us to think that Jesus is unapproachable. 
I think our enemy's strategies are to get us to think that it's just not worth doing, that it really couldn't make a difference to come to the throne of grace and pray. Coming boldly to God's throne of grace means to pray, to come to God in prayer. Ancient rulers could not be approached by the people. Even their closest advisors could not come before them without an invitation. I think of Esther, Queen Esther, risking her own life to come before the king, who was even her husband, but he could have had her killed. And she said, if I perish, I perish. Well, you know what we have here in Hebrews 4.16? An invitation to come without money, without cost. The cost has already been paid. But to come boldly to God's throne again and again and again and again to receive his mercy and find his grace to help. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus offered that sacrifice one time and it was completely sufficient. Lord, we just pray for your grace to stand firm and to hold fast and to draw near. We thank you for your goodness, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, please stand with me. We, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for and we have a lot to pray about. And I'll be up here and Pastor Ed will be up here and Dave will be up here. And um, if anybody needs prayer about anything, we'll be up here to pray for you and with you. And I uh, also want to remind you that uh, in your bulletin there is a bookmark again this week for you to read alone, with your family, with other believers. And what is there for Saturday is what uh, will be being preached next Sunday. I'm going to miss you next Sunday. I'll be at the college retreat with our college students, uh, speaking with, to them, and Pete Roberts will be preaching next Sunday. So come on out because he's gifted of God to uh, share the word. Um, and God bless you. Have a great day.